So today I want to talk about King Alfred in the context of what I would call the emergence of the king spirit, but also the constraints that form this emergent behavior, innovative things that he did uh, in both a scholarly way, in a legal way, and his response in war. When you look at his background, what you first see is that he's deeply learned in Latin, in Greek, he's, he's the people around him. He's a scholar of the Christian texts of Boethius, of all these ancient texts that are He's, but you could call him, well, he, he very well, in another life, he would have been one of the, these uh, scholar monks that lived in one of the monasteries, right? Because these are the people that have surrounded him. And that's the knowledge he's, he's studying these texts. And of course, as we know, he translated them himself. But in terms of the Viking situation, what happens to him is, is the Vikings, like jumping forward, I'm not going to go into the detailed history of it, but the Vikings have essentially won the war against him. And he's left in this place where... Um, he's left in this position, in this resistance, in this swamp in Somerset. When the crucial point, I think, is when he is in um, he's in the village, uh, in fighting the, in Somerset. It's basically a small situation, with a small group of people around him, to, and from there he leads the uh, he leads the war outwards and defeats the Danes eventually. But at that point, he'd be thinking, when did this go so wrong? How did this go so wrong? about Alfred is that it's the constraints of this Viking war that lead him to innovate and think of other ways of doing things, but also bearing the responsibility on himself for the situation they find themselves in. Is that there's the story, it's linked to the story of the cakes too, is that he's waiting in this, uh, in this, uh, this house uh, for these cakes to be made in the oven. They start to burn. And then the old woman who lives there and cooks for him comes in and says, you're happy enough to eat them when they're fresh out of the oven, yet you do nothing when they burn. And then he, Alfred acknowledges this and realizes that and actually stops them from burning. And there's a key lesson in there, and I think that what that says is understanding what's going on on the local level. Because if you're a king, you're removed from things, right? You're removed from the understanding of what's happening on the local. There's a deep idea in that, is that he's understanding how to fight a sort of resistance war from this place from in Somerset, uh, in this bog. He's got contemplating his situation, taking responsibility for the whole thing and thinking, how could we fix this situation so it doesn't happen again? You see that also reflected in the solution when he institutes laws of, of national defense, which are linked to the boroughs, right? Instead of being a top-down command, a top-down command from, uh, from high above when the defense comes in, all the boroughs have an independent defense plan that they can organize themselves, right? And again, you can see that sort of emergence of the sovereignty of the boroughs there, right? Taking their, like I mentioned in the last video, taking constituent piece of their duty to defend the realm from external threat. This kind of king is a local king. He's operating on the ground, especially when you see it in the start of that resistance campaign that he's leading from Somerset. So he's having these realizations. Like, but the thing that was so brilliant about what he does is he takes responsibility for it on himself, right? But also thinking about it too, that it's not just him. Like, how did this all go wrong? And he thinks deeply about it. And he talks about this in, in another statement as well. Uh, and he realized that we made a mistake in thinking that learning these other languages uh, would lead us to knowledge and insight realizes that to actually have made this defense proper we needed to 
translate these works into English, these great works like the Bible, Boethius, and this, this knowledge, so it's in an English sensibility, is a small little thing understood, is that, oh, it's everyone. It's me, it's my fault, but it's also everyone, everyone's fault, but also their responsibility to solve this threat, to neutralize this threat. You could blame everything on someone else, like you've lost your entire kingdom, right? You're, you're in this tiny place. That's the time that you go, this is someone else's problem, you're useless, this, that, and then probably someone stabs you in the back, <laughs> kills you. But that's the time where that sort of thing happens, right? Where people become resentful. Instead of becoming resentful and saying that we lost this, it's over. No, he said he bears the responsibility and realizes that he's coming to the conclusion of what went wrong. That contributes to his later victory against the Vikings, this understanding. Obviously, there's lots of fighting in between, but I am certain that his, him being a scholar and him being humbled is crucial to his insight and his genius in the later understandings he has of decentralizing things. I think those two things link together, the grand understanding of the scholar and the languages and the deep humbleness of being t everything being taken away from you. I think you put those two things together, you're putting a mighty constraint and a mighty knowledge. You have invention, right? Uh, what's the term? It's uh, necessity is the mother of invention. You could also say constraints are the mother of adaptation, right? The grand constraint on someone with this enormous um, wealth of knowledge generates exaptation, which is the, in the mind, you're exapting these bits of psychotechnology and putting them together, going how, what went wrong? Okay, translating the Bible, making law to decentralize uh, the resistance, having these defense plans. The British Navy, I think, is connected as well. His ideas of building, building a navy and many other things. And that is why I think he, should, he is Alfred the Great. That, that genius of, of translating, of making the knowledge available and, make it in, and making it bottom up. That's powerful. I'm going to read Alfred's introduction to one of his translations, which is quite interesting based on what I've been talking about. And I would have it known that very often it has come to my mind what men of learning there were formerly throughout England both in religious and secular orders, and how there were happy times then throughout England, and how the kings who had authority over this people obeyed God and his messengers, and how they not only maintained their peace, morality, and authority at home, but also extended their territory outside, and how they succeeded both in warfare and in wisdom, and also how eager were the religious orders both in teaching in learning as well as in all the holy services which it was their duty to perform for God, and how people from abroad sought wisdom and instruction in this country, and how nowadays, if we wish to acquire these things, we would have to seek them outside. Learning has declined so thoroughly in England that there were very few men on this side of the Humber who could understand their divine services in English, or even translate a single letter from Latin into English. And I suppose there were not many beyond the Humber either. There were so few of them that I cannot recollect even a single one south of the Thames when I succeeded to the kingdom. Thanks be to God Almighty that we now have a supply of teachers at all. Therefore I beseech you to do as I believe you are willing to do. As often as you can, free yourself from worldly affairs so that you may apply the wisdom which God gave you wherever you can. 
Remember what punishments befell us in the world when we ourselves did not cherish learning nor transmit it to other men. We were Christians in name only, and very few of us possessed Christian virtues. When I reflected on all this, I recollected how, before everything was ransacked and burned, the churches throughout England stood filled with treasures and books. Similarly, there were a great multitude of those serving God, and they derived very little benefit from those books, because they could understand nothing in them, since they were not written in any of their own language. It is as if they had said, Our ancestors, who formerly maintained these places, loved wisdom, and through it they obtained wealth and passed it on to us. Here one can still see their track, but we cannot follow it. Therefore we have now lost the wealth, as well as the wisdom, because we did not wish to set our minds to the track. When I reflected on all this, I wondered exceedingly why the good wise men, who were formerly found throughout England, and had thoroughly studied all these books, did not wish to translate any part of them to our own language. But I immediately answered myself and said, they did not think that men would ever become so careless and that learning would decay like this. They refrained from doing it through this resolve. Namely, they wished that the more languages we knew, the greater would be the wisdom in this land. Then I recalled how the law was first composed in Hebrew language, and thereafter, when the Greeks learned it, they translated it into all their own language and all other books as well. And so too the Romans, after they had mastered them, translated them all through learned interpreters into their own language. Similarly, all the other Christian peoples turned some part of them into their own language. He's getting the idea, too, from Boethius, which is one of the great texts that he translates, because Boethius did the same thing. Boethius translated many of these great Greek works into uh, Latin, so Romans could understand them. So, therefore, it seems best to me if it seems so to you, and he's talking to the ecclesiastical authority, this is his directive, right? It seems best to me, if it seems so to you, that we sh too should turn into the language that we can all understand certain books which are the most necessary for all men to know and accomplish this, as with God's help, we may very easily do provided we have peace enough so that all the free-born free -born young men now in England who have the means to apply themselves may be set to learning as long as they are not useful for some other employment, until the time that they can read English writings properly. Thereafter, one may instruct in Latin those who wish to teach further and wishes to employ to advance holy orders. And that part's brilliant, right? This idea that, that and so that all free-born young men now in England who have the means to apply themselves may be set to learning. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's like, yes, of course, he's realised this. This is what we did wrong. This is what we need. People need the knowledge. People need the power that I've got. If I'm responsible, they're responsible. They need, they need that same power too in their own sense. We must put our minds to this task if we are to survive the constraints that have been put upon us. It's powerful, man, when you think about emotional stuff too. It's like just the, you know, calling freeborn too. Brilliant. When I recalled how knowledge of Latin had previously decayed throughout England, and yet many could still read things written in English, I then began, amidst the various and multifarious afflictions of the, this kingdom, the Danes, to translate into English the book which in Latin is called Pastorialis, an English shepherd book, sometimes word for word, sometimes sense for sense. And this is that what I was talking about earlier, this sense for sense. That is so important because it's about the context, the senses of this land and the context of these words that we understand. 
So it both adds to the knowledge that's in these books is translating, but because not everything can be translated. So it's filling the books, imbuing the books also with the wisdom of the place they're in. Uh, obviously, a lot of it comes from the book that's being translated, but there is lots of it, and you can see it in Alfred's translations where they're putting it into the work, uh, what they, how they have seen things and these sensibilities. So it transmutes the work, adds to it. It's not just a blind translation. It adds to it in a special way in, in these contexts, in this northern wind, in this northwestern place, in this cold, in this dank, dark environment. This is in the Mediterranean. So the spirit of that is put in the text by these, this translation. Sometimes word for word, sometimes sense for sense, as I learned it from Plegmund, my archbishop, and from Asser, my bishop, and from Grimbold, my mass priest, and from John, my mass priest, after I had mastered it. I translated it into English as best I understood it, and as I could most meaningfully render it. And you can see like his genius as well. as like, When you summarise something, the effort of translation he's really getting what this stuff means, this knowledge and wisdom means, and then applying it in the way he's ruling the place and fighting the war. If he hadn't have translated it, he would no way have had the same kind of success that he did. Because he wouldn't, you just, it, what it does for your memory, self-summarize or summarizing what you've done, it's immediately, you're able to recall it, it's right there. If you just read something, like there's uh, Richard Feynman, a famous physicist says that, you don't understand something until you can teach it. And if you're translating something, you're teaching it, right? Like you read something, ah, oh, it makes sense, because you're reading the logic and the propositional construction of the person you're reading, of the person that's written it for you and spent all this time trying to make it, okay, you get it, but you don't know it. You only know it when you can teach it, when you truly know it, when you can, when you can basically teach it, or in summarizing it and translating something especially, that is when you're teaching something. So that's what makes him great as the scholar king. I translated it into English as best I understood it, and as I could most meaningfully render it. I intend to send a copy to each bishopric, which is probably an ecclesiastical territory, in my kingdom. And in each copy there will be an astel. And in God's name I command that no one shall take that astel from the book, nor the book from the church. It is not known how long there shall be such learned bishops as, thanks be to God, there are now nearly everywhere. Therefore, I wish that they, the book in the Aestel, always remain in place, unless the bishop wishes to have the book with him, or to loan it somewhere, or someone is copying it. And the Aestel, I may have mentioned it earlier, the Aestel has an icon, which is a, a symbol for you to, to understand something, for you to see outside your frame and understand the context in which it's connected to, right? An Aestel, it's an icon of Alfred the Great, right? in gold encrusted, you should Google this, uh, Aster, Alfred Aestel, and it has a pointer in it made of bone. And so that goes with the Bible and you read and you follow along. So you've always got the symbol of the highest value and the highest authority, the king saying, this is worth reading. This is, you know, this is the highest thing. This is the highest knowledge, right? Always when you're reading it, that icon's there. It's not about him. It's not about his ego. Clearly he doesn't have one based on all his efforts he's doing here, right? This is not. This is a godly man. This is a. This is based on. Um, this is based on agape, for giving, giving in advance to everyone. Right, that Christian spirit of uh, the agape. So you have this scholar king coming to the realization that this knowledge needs to be decentralized. 
moved out to the wider people, into the boroughs, out to the locals so they can organise their own defence. And with that realisation, he also knows that, ah, part of this is we need to convert the Vikings to Christianity as well. So we're dealing with people that are, are manageable in the sense that they we can understand their work, because by this time, Alpha's realised that the Vikings are, they'll just go back on what they say. You see this happening constantly. Um, and he changes how he behaves as well in response to that, um, fighting his war and, and what, how he adapts to it. But like, it so, seems so simple, translated into English. But for so long in all these countries, like Latin was the language of arcane knowledge and Greek as well. But this is a realization like, no, that the people are never going to fully understand this unless it has that English sensibility self-organizing systems of culture and the emergent people of the English, as you see here, constraints create new values and a new culture for the situation that you're in. And that is all, that is imbued in the translations. And you can see it in some of the other texts he does, the pastoral care, I think. You can see also Boethius, that certain things are imbued with Alfred's particular situation. So you really get an idea of where his mind's at. And people have done comparisons with the actual Latin versions of these texts and taken the bits that, oh, we know that Alfred added his bits and pieces in there when he made the translation into English, uh, his, the way he saw things. And so he sends letters out across the kingdom to have people uh, translate as many of these texts as possible and copy them into English and to teach it, right? And he's appealing to them in this introduction to the letter to say, that this was our mistake. It wasn't just, not just me, it's all of us. We all must take responsibility. And he's realized this in the resistance war when he's taken responsibility of the situation himself. For me, that's the birth of this bottom-upness that you see. And it's the constraints of the outer. It's the constraints and the invading enemy that pull everyone together. And then we have to band together and understand how to do this in a different way. It's those constraints that lead the authority, that lead Alfred to realize that no, we shouldn't hold this stuff in reserve. We shouldn't hold this stuff just to ourselves. We need to get it out to the boroughs, to the people, so they can enlighten themselves with the same knowledge in their language, uh, in their language, and pass that on, so they have the ability to use this knowledge to defeat threats to the mind, threats to the spirit of pagans, threats to the physical temporal. Uh, and you can see with this understanding why he defeats them why he defeats them. If only more kings were scholars like him as time progressed. If they were, then we would probably have seen uh, the Normans defeated. He wants the king spirit, the spirit that, of knowledge, the scholarly spirit that he has absorbed from these texts and learned and translated. He's giving this power out to the people in translation with great effort amongst the war, in a war, as part of a solution, after fighting from a tiny little village that he was taken to that was all that was left of his kingdom if he fights and, and wins from that place and it all comes from this understanding of this of of wisdoms and creating your own wisdoms based on your own constraints and finding the solutions to those problems he's a genius and that's why he's great he's i think he's he's like marcus aurelius he's like marcus aurelius but that's what's so brilliant about him and why it's connected to england too because it is so quaint is that it's a small resistance war, like the grand Marcus Aurelius. And yes, great man. And I've read the meditations as a great, and they are great practices. And you can see, because the true meaning of the meditations is in them being a, his practice. You can see him practicing Stoic um, philosophy. And that is brilliant. But it's grand, isn't it? 
grand emperor of Rome. And this is so quaint, tiny little thing, but the genius is in that little kernel. This is for everyone, or we need everyone. They need the knowledge. We need to give them the power, the knowledge, and that's how we win. That's how we survive. That's how we beat these Danes, this dragon from across the sea. Because this is what I would call the epoch of the dragon as well. And it's these constraints in this epoch of the dragon where people are just arriving at sea. The sea is a danger in the epoch of the dragon. The sea is a bad place, right? And it's through these constraints of people invading from overseas constantly. They can come and turn up anywhere. They can sail around the place. Oh, they're attacking from the south now. They're attacking from the north. But it's these constraints that birth the new epoch, which is like the epoch of the Greenwood.